This is Sam of Historian Explaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures are on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, YouTube, and other platforms. And if you can help to keep them coming, please go to the Patreon page. The link is in the description. So today I want to discuss the movie The Green Knight which I was able to see this past Sunday after, of course, more than a year's wait. And last year, when I learned that a movie based on Sir Gawain and the Green Knight had been produced and was going to come out, it prompted me to record a series of lectures about the Arthurian mythos, the whole mythology and world surrounding King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table and I can post the links to those. But now that I have seen the movie, I want to make a series of comments to put it into context, into the context of medieval history, of mythology, specifically the Arthurian cycle, and the context of today, of the present moment when this movie was produced and is now reaching audiences. So the movie came out about a week and a half ago, as of when I'm speaking right now. Already, it's pretty clear that it is a commercial success, at least relatively speaking. It opened at number two in the box office on its opening weekend. It's already had a lot of sales outside the United States as well. It's made so far over $12 million. And for a movie that, by Hollywood standards, is a small-budget independent film, although it's really hard to believe that based on the production values that you see on screen and the, the scale, it is already a significant success for a movie in that sort of tier. And that in itself is significant because the Arthurian legends have been around for about a thousand years now. Some basic notion of a leader called King Arthur goes back even centuries longer than that. And they have been tremendously popular and have had a staying power and endurance in the world of literature and art, but they've had a bit of a hard time in terms of translating onto screen. You might know there are no major classic movies based on the Arthur mythology. There have been no major blockbuster films on the scale of Titanic or Avatar in any way connected to the Arthur mythos. There have been a few relatively successful movies that can, loosely speaking, be seen as classics like Camelot from the 1960s or Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which probably is the most enduringly popular movie referring to the Arthur legends that there's been thus far. So the mere fact that the Green Knight has been successful initially is significant. It's the first commercially successful movie dealing with the Arthur mythology in 17 years since a moderately successful movie called King Arthur with Clive Owen and Kira Knightley that came out in 2004. It's also the first ever successful dramatization of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. 
So this is a story that is at least 600 years old and probably goes back to earlier sources even than that. And the central character of Gawain already existed previously and is over a thousand years old. But this is the first time that his central story has reached audiences and achieved some success. So I want to talk about the context, the complexities, the meanings of this story, and the themes and the ideas that are woven into it in order to understand why, after so many centuries, it's finally reaching a contemporary modern audience and having, I think, some resonance. Most significantly, I would say, this story of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight is fundamentally a meditation on shame as a motivating and shaping force in people's lives and shame as a tragic necessity of life, something that is to some degree unavoidable and makes life fundamentally tragic. So I'm largely going to improvise here. I could take a lot longer to plan, but I want to put out these comments while the movie is still fresh in my mind. I can't rewatch it because it's still in theaters. And I want to get these out while people still have a chance to see the movie in theaters if they haven't. So this is going to be largely improvised. It might at points be a bit of a mess, but I'm going to try to work my way from the outside in, so to speak, from the history of the Arthurian legends that surround this story and this movie, to the style of the movie, the contents and events that are portrayed, and how they compare against the original canonical or oldest canonical version of the story that we have in our hands, which is the 14th century epic poem, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. And based on that comparison, and by looking at the differences, the often really significant and revealing differences between the movie and the poem, I want to try to show the change in thinking, the way that underlying ideas suggested by the story have been adapted and changed for a contemporary audience. So this will not be a review. Inevitably, I'm going to comment on what I think works effectively and doesn't in the movie, but that is not my main point. I liked the movie. I enjoyed it. I thought it was good. I also think it has serious flaws. And maybe as a historian, it's just inevitable that changes from the original are going to catch my attention and make me wary and skeptical and question why these shifts and changes were made. But hopefully, rather than just kvetching about changes from the original, it'll give us some insight as to how this movie is geared to speak to a contemporary audience. The Arthur mythology and the Gawain story in particular had a certain place and a certain significance to people in the Middle Ages, which they then lost for centuries. And it's now more than 500 years after those stories sort of faded into the background, at least of high art and literature, that I think they may be starting to make a comeback and are finding ways to speak to people and be relevant in the 21st century. And I would venture to guess that this movie, The Green Knight, might be one beginning in a longer trend of revival, of an Arthurian revival, but I don't know. We'll see.
So firstly, what is this Arthurian mythos? Well, I'm not going to get deeply into the details because I went through this in pretty gross detail in my lectures last year about the Arthur cycle, uh, the rise and fall of King Arthur and Camelot and the historical King Arthur, which I can link to in the description. But just to briefly summarize, there may or may not have been an original historical King Arthur. If so, he was a Celto-Roman war leader in probably southwestern Britain in the late 400s or early 500s. He's referred to in a few early medieval texts written in Wales in the early Middle Ages, and they include a couple of Latin historical chronicles and some surviving Welsh bardic poems. And these surviving texts give only a very little bit of sketchy information about this alleged leader. They don't tell us much about his career, his character, or the people who surrounded him. Rather, the stories and romances that we know of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table were composed in the High Middle Ages, in the 11 and 1200s, by mostly French authors. In the High Middle Ages, England was ruled by a Norman dynasty, and the aristocracy was mostly Norman. So there was a lot of travel and communication and stories about mythic figures from Britain, like King Arthur, moved back and forth across the Channel. And writers writing mainly in French, like Chrétien de Troyes and Marie de France, composed the stories that we know that set up Arthur as this heroic, chivalrous king with his wife Guinevere, his knights of the round table who go out on quests for the Holy Grail, etc., etc. And this sort of mythic world, or this, you could say, Arthurian universe that these writers created in the High Middle Ages always included the story of Arthur's downfall and the fact that he is betrayed either by his close friend Lancelot or his sister Morgan Le Fay or his illegitimate son Mordred or all of the above. And hence, this kind of idyllic kingdom that he rules over is short-lived and does not survive his defeat and death. And these stories about the various knights were a lot of them were plucked out and collected from existing folklore, maybe some actual historical incidents, and further integrated as this sort of fantasy universe of Arthur expanded and grew. And these stories were strung together into cycles that were called the Vulgate Cycle and the Post-Vulgate Cycle, which are mostly anonymous. So after this sort of early generation, which centers on Chrétien de Troyes, there is a period of anonymous epics and romances through the 1200s. In the 1300s, it seems that the Arthur mythology was still around, but it had slowed. It was no longer a major subject of authors' time and attention the way it had been earlier in the High Middle Ages. So the one really major landmark Arthurian work from the 1300s is Sir Gawain and the Green Knight which is exceptional in all kinds of ways. It is an epic poem of 2,530 lines, written in late Middle English, 
and specifically in the dialect of the Northwest Midlands, basically the area around Chester in what was then a fairly remote corner of England. It's anonymous. We don't know who wrote it, but it seems very likely that it was a monk in one of the monasteries in that part of England. It was found in a manuscript book together with three other poems that seem to be all by this same anonymous author. And this author is customarily called the Pearl Poet because another very important Middle English poem in that same book is called Pearl, and it's about a man who is in a state of grief and mourning and then has a dream vision that helps him to deal with his grief. So we call this person the Pearl Poet, and they wrote Sir Gawain and the Green Knight in Middle English, which is unusual because those other earlier epics I referred to in the Vulgate Cycle or Chrétien de Troyes, they were in French. That was the customary language for Arthurian romance, was Norman French. So this one is in Middle English. It's The language is a little too different from modern English to be understandable, and today it has to be translated to be understood. It is written very inventively and with great literary skill. It is rhyming, so it, the lines have end rhyme, which was the French custom at that time, but they also have internal alliteration, which was the older Anglo-Saxon custom. So it actually combines the Anglo-Saxon and French techniques together very skillfully. The fact that the poem is written in Middle English and that it has rhyming verses in a so-called bob and wheel pattern at the end of each stanza suggests that the author intended it for the wider public, for it to be memorized and performed by bards and minstrels to be heard by the broader illiterate public, unlike the high romances of the High Middle Ages. So it was conceived probably as a more popular work, and so maybe it's not surprising that now it's had some more success with the broader movie-going public. And it tells the story of, obviously, Sir Gawain. And I won't go through the details of the story right now, but in case you don't know, basically, King Arthur and his knights are holding a Christmas celebration at Camelot. They're confronted by a strange, gigantic green knight riding on a green horse who challenges anyone from the round table to strike a free blow at him, to even try to kill him if they can, on the condition that then the Green Knight can return the blow later. So it's basically a test of skill. And Arthur at first offers to take up this challenge and fight the Green Knight, but his young nephew, Sir Gawain, steps in and insists that he should take the challenge instead. He successfully beheads the Green Knight, but the knight does not die. He simply puts his head back on and tells Gawain that one year later, the following Christmas, he must ride north into the wilderness and find the Green Chapel, where the Green Knight will then return the strike back at him, blow for blow. So one year later, Gawain fulfills this oath to the Green Knight. He travels through the wilderness, meets with danger and tribulation. He eventually is able to take shelter at the castle, the remote uh, wilderness castle of a lord called Sir Bertilac, or at least in modern translations, he's usually called Sir Bertilac. 
he makes an agreement with Sir Bertilak to stay under his protection on the condition that if he gains anything or receives any gifts during his stay at the castle, he will hand them over to Bertilak, and Bertilak in return will go hunting and give any of his prizes from the hunt to Gawain. So this is a, a winnings exchange agreement. While he's there, Bertilak's wife also approaches him several times in bed, tries to seduce him, very narrowly fails to do so. But she does give him a gift of a magical green sash, which she claims will protect Gawain on his quest. Gawain takes the sash, and rather than giving it over to Bertilak in accord with their agreement, he secretly wears it under his armor, proceeds up into the forest, finds the remote green chapel where the green knight has been sharpening his blade, ready to strike at Gawain. But Gawain has the magical sash to protect him. So I'm going to leave off the plot summary there for the moment, because you may see that this basic outline of the story as told in the original poem is basically reproduced more or less in the movie. But there's a lot of other material added into the movie that's not there in the original poem. It's sort of fattened out, you could say. And some aspects of it are also truncated and trimmed back, particularly the Bertilak castle section of the story. And most significantly, the ending is different. So I will get to spoilers in this podcast. I will talk about the ending of the medieval poem and how it is different in the movie. I will save that discussion until the end, until the last section, where I will give a sort of final spoiler warning if you don't want to know how the movie, or the poem for that matter, turns out. So this epic poem, which as I said is anonymous, it's by the the so-called Pearl Poet, it survives in only one original manuscript, which dates to the late 1300s, somewhere between 1375 and 1400. So whereas the earlier Arthur romances from that sort of golden age in the 1100s and the 1200s, they were written in large part to celebrate, to display, even to codify the standards of chivalry. By the time Sir Gawain and the Green Knight was written, Chivalry was still around. You could say it was still in force as a set of norms and ethical codes for knights, but it was already starting to decline. Knights were becoming less and less important as the years went by and as they were replaced by large armies, infantry armies, and artillery. So after Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, there's really only one more remaining Arthurian work that has had any lasting impact. And that is Thomas Mallory's Le Morte d'Arthur, which is an effort to collect and weave together all the various stories from the Arthur mythos into one narrative, running through Arthur's lifetime, from his conception and birth to his downfall and death and burial at Avalon. And this epic, Le Morte d'Arthur, was written by Thomas Mallory most likely when he was in prison in the 1470s, and then it was published in 1485, right as soon as the first printing press was set up in England by Caxton in 1485. And it had a wide circulation, it was popular, it became kind of the definitive statement of the King Arthur and Camelot mythology. 
But pretty soon after, that mythology faded out of literature with the Renaissance, the classical revival, the new modern forms of literature, it really got eclipsed and faded into the background. And you could say, except maybe in some popular ballads and folklore, it really faded out of view through the 16 and 1700s. Arthurianism was then revived in the 1800s with the Romantic movement, the neo-medievalism of the Victorian age. You get writers like Alfred Lord Tennyson and William Morris drawing on this medieval mythology. They're interested in looking back at the romance, the mystery, the magic of the Middle Ages as against what they see as sort of dry, boring, industrial modernity. And then in the 20th century, the Arthur legends do continue to have some literary life, but they're really not at the center. They're just kind of popular light entertainment, more or less. And they struggle to make it into the new media. They do gain some audience, but not that much. There are a few King Arthur movies in the early and mid-1900s, but none of them are terribly successful. Really, the first one that actually catches people's imagination and the new tastes of the time is Camelot, which starts off as a Broadway musical in 1960 and then is made into a movie in 1967. And Camelot is pretty romantic, right? It engages in this sort of golden idealization of Camelot. It also has some sense of humor. It sort of pokes fun at how self-important and stuffy this mythology can seem. It's not totally serious, but it is a sort of modern repackaging of the high romance of Arthur and the Round Table. In the 1970s, you can see that the mood really shifts. It's pretty dramatic, and there's a series of sort of unusual, quirky, small-budget movies based on the Arthur legends, all of which are much more cynical and in some way try to undermine or question or parody the sort of self-serious Arthur mythos. So you have Lancelot du Lac in French by Robert Bresson in 1974, which is very cynical and detached and shows the characters acting as almost automatons without passion, just kind of going through the motions of this long, dead epic. Uh, it's kind of intentionally boring and tedious, almost like as a joke. Then, of course, right after that, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which is a send-up of the Arthur legends and also of the Middle Ages in general as just sort of a ridiculous, benighted, foolish era. And then a few years after that, Eric Romer's Perceval le Galois, which is another kind of experimental, small French film, which just sort of stages it all like a child's cartoon almost as a, a, a big joke. The quest for the Holy Grail as kind of a, <laughs> a farce. You could see these movies in the 70s as a sign of kind of the dead end of Arthurianism that could just no longer be taken seriously in the modern world, in the more mature, more knowing, more serious modern world. In the 80s, then, there is something of a return to chivalric romance 
and it's not entirely successful. The sort of one very good Arthur movie that comes out of the 80s is Excalibur, which is an Irish film from 1981 that recapitulates basically the whole core story of Arthur, which many audiences by that time no longer knew. It was no longer such a familiar set piece that everyone could have recited on their own. So Excalibur, again, is a a fairly low-budget movie. It's atmospheric. It has the look of a sort of crude medieval world. But it has the romance of the basic Arthur story. It's reasonably successful. It's still viewed today. And that's really you could say, a parallel to Les Mortes d'Arthur from 1485, which was sort of the last great literary statement of Arthur, which also tried to sum up the whole story and encapsulate it all. Likewise, Excalibur does the same sort of thing in movie form. There were a few other Arthur movies after that, such as Sword of the Valiant, which came out in 1984. And that was the first wide-release theatrical film that used Sir Gawain and the Green Knight as a template. And it was a huge failure, a complete flop. It's corny. The design is very poor. It features a very sexy Michael O'Keefe as Gawain, but with a sort of laughable 80s pageboy haircut. It has Sean Connery as the Green Knight, which is, you know, an impressive casting, but he appears in this sort of shiny, maybe lycra green costume that looks sort of like an Arthurian drag queen, and it's serious and cheesy. At the time, it would have been reasonable to suspect that this marked sort of the final end of Arthur on screen. There were basically none, at least none of any significance, throughout the whole 1990s. In 2004, this movie that I mentioned, King Arthur, came out, which took a different tack. It sort of peeled back the familiar mythology, the magic, the romance, and tried to present, in quotation marks, a historically realistic version of Arthur. He is presented as a late Roman general. Guinevere is some sort of Celtic chiefess. And it it tries to kind of take on the trappings, you could say, of historical believability, even though there's no strong evidence as to who the historical King Arthur was or what he did. So it's just a different kind of fiction, really. And that movie was somewhat successful, but not very. It's, I don't know how many of you have heard of it. It's pretty forgotten already. And that was really it until 13 years later, a movie called King Arthur Legend of the Sword, which was a huge failure. Well, I haven't seen it. I don't. I can't speak to it artistically, but it was certainly a commercial failure. It was a sort of an effort to make a pumped up, fast paced, contemporary style action movie that just happens to take place in medieval Britain. Nobody really seems to have gotten much out of it and it was quickly forgotten. So that's really been it until this movie came out this year. So what then might it be about this movie that makes it relatively more successful than so many previous attempts to put Arthur mythology on screen? Well, there are two basic obvious answers to that question. One is the choice of material the story of Gawain and the Green Knight, and the other is the distinctive style. 
And I'm going to start with the style first and try to discuss that briefly. There have been previous attempts, like I mentioned, the 2004 King Arthur. There have been attempts to adapt and update Arthur to make it more, in quotation marks, realistic. But this is maybe a fool's errand because it's the fantasy and the romance that make Arthurianism so appealing. And indeed, critics criticized the 2004 movie for precisely that reason, that by making it more realistic, they lost the magic and the mystery of Arthur's world. So what was the point? Well, this movie, The Green Knight, does also attempt to capture a certain sort of realism, but it's not a realism that excludes the magic, the mystery, the otherworldliness. It's, you could say, in a, in a sense, it's a kind of magical realism, but even that might be misleading. The realism is very limited and targeted to certain aspects of the film. On the one hand, there's a kind of textural realism. The settings, the sets, the costumes are not so cleaned up. They don't look so spick and span as you'd expect to see in scenes of Camelot. There's mud, there's dirty water, the weather is gloomy. So in this way, you could say even as spectacular magical events take place on screen, the feel of the environment is somehow more gritty. There's also a psychological realism. The movie follows the main character, Gawain, very closely, and it deals a lot with the complexities of his psyche, which clearly the writers and the director wanted to convey as vividly and convincingly as possible. So there is realism in those respects, but then you of course have to ask, how can you realistically portray places like Camelot or Bertillac's Castle or the Green Chapel, which are objects of fantasy? There is no real original Camelot to go back to and simply recreate accurately. There's no accuracy here. As I said, it's doubtful whether or not there actually was a historical King Arthur or Camelot or any of these things. And even if there was, the portrayals that we have about them are from the high Middle Ages when they are depicted in completely anachronistic and unrealistic ways. Nobody was building enormous stone castles in the 6th century. Nobody was riding around on horseback with stirrups. There were no knights. There was no chivalry. All of those those things are later creations of the High Middle Ages, and those epics about Lancelot and Galahad and Arthur and Guinevere that were written in the 11 and 1200s are all taking the environment of their own time, right? The, the jousting nights, the tournaments, they're taking both the reality and the ideals of courtly life of their own age and projecting them onto the blank canvas of the Dark Age. So there is no sort of accurate historical stratum to excavate and present realistically in a drama. And I think the filmmakers who made The Green Knight understand that. They know that they're, they're not trying to bring some sort of slice of reality. They're not trying to tell a story that is believable as taking place in the real world. They just wanted to have some of the feeling and associations of the real world for the purpose, ostensibly at least, of making the psychological drama more compelling. 
So the story of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, both in the original poem and in the movie, starts at Camelot. But even Camelot in the movie The Green Knight appears as looming, imposing, rather dreary, even a bit sinister. Basically everything in The Green Knight has a sort of sinister undertone to it. Camelot appears as a tremendous looming stone tower in the middle of a fairly dense, grubby, tight-packed, wet medieval town. And outside the walls of Camelot, if we are to understand that word as applying to the whole town, there are tremendous, frighteningly wide-open fields of heather and scrub under perpetually gloomy gray skies. Now, granted, that is what a lot of Britain looks like, at least most of the year, but nonetheless, the sun does come out once in a while (laughs) in the real Britain, but not in the mythic Britain that we see in The Green Knight. There seems to be a constant pall over everything. The interiors and exteriors in this world are gray, gloomy, misty, and the scenes of Gawain riding out of Camelot when he sets out on his quest show him crossing enormous fields of heather, which to my mind, bring to mind the phrase the blasted heath from Macbeth. I think that if we were to take the sort of mythic world that this movie constructs, it's clearly drawing on modern-day dark associations with the Middle Ages, a time of superstition, of disease, of violence. And if one were to compare it to some other widely known piece of literature that it's probably drawing on for inspiration, it would be Macbeth more so than any Arthurian work apart from Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. The evocation of fate, of inescapable destiny, of the sort of poisoning effects of ambition and shame, the manipulative power of women to spur men on to action through the strategic use of shame. All of this is very evocative of Macbeth and the sort of spectral figures that Gawain encounters on his way to the Green Chapel, most of which were added into the story for this movie. They were not in the original poem. They are very evocative of the witches that Macbeth and Banquo encounter on the Heath. So if anything, I would say the movie represents a sort of recasting of Sir Gawain into more like the world of Macbeth, with all of its psychological and mythological associations. And like in Shakespeare's play, this misty, gloomy setting allows the story to combine a sort of gritty psychological realism together with the possibility of magic and prophecy. So the overall style of the movie, I think, gives it a unifying mood and atmosphere. But the downside is that it reduces a lot of the tension of the story. Because much of the tension, I think, of in the original poem derives from the stark contrast between Camelot on the one hand and the wilderness and the green chapel 
on the other hand. So Camelot is a place of law and authority. It's the center of civilization. It's also a place of love and comfort and joy. And at the beginning of the poem, Arthur's court is in the midst of the celebration of Christmas. And there's music and dancing. Presumably by implication, there is romance and sex going on. There is pageantry and there is feasting, the sharing of, of bounty, the Green Knight shows up to dramatically disrupt this sort of utopian scene and to then draw Gawain out into the dark, the forbidden, the dangerous world of the wilds. Whereas in the movie, you don't really get a sense. There's not so much drama there in Gawain riding out alone into the wilderness because Camelot already seems pretty dreary and harsh to begin with. It does show a scene of the Christmas court at Camelot, but somehow there are no decorations, there's no music, there's no fire. It just seems like a rather grubby place on an ordinary grubby day. So in the movie version, the question then is, where does the tension come from? What is tying Gawain down to Camelot? What are the bonds that he's having to break or the sacrifices that he has to make when he does ride out of the walls of Camelot and out into wild country? The basic, simple answer to that question is women. It's his attachment to women that keeps Gawain tied to Camelot. And also with that, it's his own character flaws and weaknesses which make him dependent on women. So this is the main emphasis of the whole first act, I think, of The Green Knight. And whereas the poem begins by describing the joyfulness, the vibrancy of the Christmas court at Camelot, the movie instead begins with a long still shot in which we are looking out through the doorway of some dark, dreary interior out into a yard, which looks to be just a sort of plain dooryard with some animals, a horse tied up, and beyond it, the roof lines of what looks like a fairly typical medieval town with split timber framed buildings and one of them for some reason is on fire for no reason that we ever really get presented with explicitly one of them is just on fire nobody seems to care is putting it out we see two people emerge and then mount the horse and ride off i figured that maybe these two individuals are bandits who are leaving after having torched the building for some reason but we never really know and we get an image of Camelot as not very orderly, a place that's already in some kind of decay or breakdown. The story has been rearranged, and the, the premise of the story, the initial tension of the story, has been rearranged in a way that I think probably makes it more immediate and more relatable to modern audiences. It's maybe no longer really believable to imagine, to even imagine Camelot as a fantasy, to even imagine this place of vibrancy, prosperity, presiding over a peaceful realm, regardless of how short-lived that peace is. Rather, the world of Camelot, as seen in the movie, is already declining and in a state of decay, as symbolized, for one thing, by the apparent weakness and old age of Arthur. 
And that too is in contrast to the poem. In the poem, it's made clear that this story takes place when Camelot is in its prime and when Arthur is a strong and respected leader. So I think that the movie in this way speaks to the sense of our own civilization being in decline today. And the Green Knight in that sense does not just symbolize, as it might have in the Middle Ages, it doesn't just symbolize the sort of disorderly, mysterious powers of nature that are always ready to challenge the powers of law, civilization, but it also represents a kind of vengeful nature intruding directly into and undermining an already weakened society that is unable to meet its challenge. And in that way, obviously, it should practically go without saying. This resonates with current anxieties about climate change and about ecological disaster in general. But that parallel, I think, is so obvious that I won't even dwell on it. But instead, I want to excavate more of what the poem is saying and how the differences and the points of similarity and resonance between the poem and the movie are revealing. So in the movie, we find out that this interior that we've been viewing the initial scene from is a brothel, and that Gawain is a regular known customer there, and furthermore, that he has a particular girlfriend or sweetheart, a peasant girl called Essel. None of that appeared in the poem. This was invented and added in. And in the movie, in these opening scenes, and also later on, after the encounter with the Green Knight, we see Gawain going to taverns, body houses, getting drunk, fighting, and brawling. He's basically a dissolute individual. And we learn some about how he fits in to the world of Camelot, which is not exactly the same as it is in the poem. Gawain, in the movie as in the poem, is a new young member of the court. He is a nephew of King Arthur by virtue of his mother being Arthur's half-sister. All of this is consistent. He's a new figure who feels the need to prove himself and to demonstrate that he is worthy of his place at the round table. A difference, however, is that in the poem, we do not learn specifics about Gawain's life or his, I should say, his family connections beyond being Arthur's nephew. But the audience of the poem in the Middle Ages would have known some of these basic facts because Gawain was a familiar stock character of Arthurian legend. He would not have been entirely new to the audience. They would have known, for one thing, that Gawain was the son of King Lot of the Orkney Islands, which is a small island chain in the North Sea, north of Scotland. And his mother would be Lot's wife, which is Morgaz, a British woman who is Arthur's elder half-sister. And Gawain left his home country of the Orkney Islands, or Orcadia, to go serve at the court of Camelot with his famous and powerful uncle, King Arthur. The story of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight then takes place when he is still young and trying to prove himself. Also, the medieval poems say that Gawain is a sort of solar hero, that he has supernatural powers that rise and set with the sun, and he's strongest and most invincible at noontime and then loses his power 
as the sun goes down. So he's associated in some way with the power or the gods or the spirits of the sun. That makes a lot of sense then that the Pearl Poet set the story of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight in between two Christmases, beginning and ending on Christmas, which follows on the heels of the winter solstice. He faces his greatest trials, his greatest dangers at those moments of darkness in the winter when sun is weakest. And by facing and surviving those trials, he gains greater power. In the movie, we actually see Gawain's mother. So he's not separated from his birth family like in the poem. Rather, he's living with his mother. And although it's never explicitly said, you know, a lot of things are left implied or oblique, it's never explicitly said, but it's pretty clear that Gawain's mother is not Morgoth's, but Morgan Le Fay, who is another half-sister of Arthur, who is the most powerful sorceress. And in traditional Arthurian legend, Morgan Le Fay, she takes different forms and has more positive or negative qualities in different stories. But in the most canonical stories from the High Middle Ages, Morgan Le Fay is malevolent. She is bitterly resentful of Arthur and Guinevere and wants to overthrow them and replace them. So she is, in a sense, Arthur's kind of evil mirror image. So it's very significant that in the movie, Morgan Le Fay is made into Gawain's mother, and particularly because in the poem, it's eventually revealed that Morgan Le Fay has orchestrated all of the events that she summoned forth this mysterious green knight as a way of challenging and trying to undermine the court of Arthur and Guinevere. So in the movie, making Morgan Gawain's mother adds a whole other level of possible meaning and interpretation to the story because we see that Morgan and Gawain have a sort of strained relationship in that Gawain is failing to meet his own mother's expectations and it's causing increasing tension. And that you might see as the real motivation for why Morgan does what she does, that she sort of sets up the whole situation in order to force Gawain to meet an important challenge and grow up. So that much is pretty clear just from seeing the movie. But in fact, in an interview with Vanity Fair, the writer and director, David Lowry, actually makes this implication explicit. And David Lowry, he was born in 1980. So he's basically on the older cusp of what you could call the millennial generation. He takes his own experiences from his own life and projects them into the story of Sir Gawain, which is not an illegitimate thing to do, especially because that is part of what makes this an appealing and effective version of the Gawain story for basically millennials, to put it bluntly. He says in this interview that he moved the characters around and made Morgan Le Fay Gawain's own mother. And in writing it, he says, quote, it became a drama about a mother and a son in a way I hadn't intended. All of a sudden, I was writing about my own relationship with my mom and the fact that I stayed, I lived under her roof for far longer than I should have. I had failure to launch syndrome and she eventually had to force me out, end quote. 
It's possible that Lowry made this move, this change in the scenario, just to make it easier to make the story more relatable to himself. But I think it ended up making it more resonant for many more people, because what have we heard about the millennial generation, the so-called boomerang generation, the incredibly high proportion of adults who are now continuing to live with their parents? and who cannot access the kind of wages necessary to pay the prices of their own homes. So I think that this move by David Lowry is pretty effective, and it does provide a fairly strong substitute explanation for how the Gawain story starts and what is psychologically at stake. Now, furthermore, I think that this change is effective also because it expands upon and amplifies forces that are already there in the original text. While the portrayal of Camelot is dramatically different, the elaboration on Gawain's character and his motivations is pretty consistent with what you can see in the original text. So in the first section of the medieval poem, we see the Green Knight ride in, and he is terrifyingly large and powerful. He has a tremendous battle axe with which he's ready to behead whoever challenges him. And he lays down his bargain, and initially there is silence. No knight is ready to take up this deal. Arthur, the king himself, under pressure, begins to accept the bargain, but finally do, I would say, of course, to shame at failing to protect your own king and uncle. Finally, Gawain steps forward, and the passage in the poem, and I'm going to read here from Simon Armitage's modernized translation of the poem. It says, quote, By Guinevere, Gawain now to his king inclines and says, I stake my claim, this moment must be mine. For I find it unfitting, as my fellow knights would, when a deed of such daring is dangled before us, that you take on this trial, tempted as you are, when brave bold men are seated on these benches, and never matched in the metal of their minds, never beaten or bettered in the field of battle. I am weakest of your warriors, and feeblest of wit. Loss of my life would be grieved the least. Were I not your nephew, my life would mean nothing. To be born of your blood is my body's only claim. Such a foolish affair is unfitting for a king. So being first to come forward, it should fall to me. So in this little speech, Gawain is saying explicitly that he has no right to be at the round table, except by the accident of birth that he happens to be the king's nephew. And so he's expressing pretty explicitly here a sense of inadequacy, a need to prove himself equal to the position that has been handed to him in life. And furthermore, his reasoning for why it should be him, why it is proper that he take up the challenge, is that he is the most expendable. It would make the least difference if his life is lost. Now, one could easily say, well, he, that's just rhetoric, he's just being self-effacing. But it is significant that nobody objects to his reasoning. Arthur accepts this and says, oh, okay, sh all right, expendable guy. <laughs> 
<laughs> you go ahead into this death trap. So the idea that Gawain is under pressure to prove himself and that he is uncomfortable being in a position of honor that he knows he has not earned all of that is laid out, I think, in the poem, and then it's just elaborated and expanded upon in the movie. Now, I should also say, in addition to this, there are more reasons why the portrayal of Gawain in the movie, whether consciously or accidentally, it actually resonates pretty closely with how people would have understood the character in the medieval poem. And that's because the poem fits into a larger context, and as I said, Gawain was already a known familiar character in Arthurian legend. Sir Gawain and the Green Knight is the first, it's the first elaborate extended narrative dealing with him specifically in a starring role. But he was known from other stories and he had a reputation already which listeners or readers would have had in mind when they came to Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. So who is Gawain? in the larger Arthur mythology. Well, he is a close kinsman with a close intimate relationship with Arthur. He's brave and heroic. He also, though, is erratic and unreliable. Like all the Arthurian knights, he's deeply flawed. He's erratic and unreliable, and he is promiscuous, and he's known as a ladies' man. So all of that is in the Arthur mythology already. So when people came to Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, that's the sort of person they would have expected to see. And the poem actually serves as a prequel. It gives Gawain's backstory of how he came to be an honored knight, of how he came to build upon his strengths and of character to overcome or at least contain his worser points and his flaws. One thing that they would know about Gawain is that like other knights, but even to a greater degree than most, he cares very much about how he is perceived by women. He wants the favor and approval of women. That fact about Gawain is even subtly pointed out. The audience is reminded of it in that little passage where Gawain stands up to take the challenge. So where it's explained in this opening scene that Gawain, because he is the nephew of Arthur, he is seated up on the dais in a place of honor next to Queen Guinevere. When he is about to stand up and make his proposal, make his speech, the narrator specifically says, by Guinevere. So in the original Middle English, it says, Gawain, that sata by the quena, who is sitting next to the queen. So he's feeling the pressure of his inadequacy and he's feeling the pressure to measure up to the place of honor he has next to the queen. This is always, I think, a drama of men shaping themselves and their actions in the sight of women. So on that level, in terms of the interpersonal drama, I think that the movie establishes the story pretty well and in a way that is fairly consonant also with the original. Not that that is the only measure of a good movie, of course, so with those observations in mind, you might understand that I found it pretty surprising when I read a Vanity Fair interview with David Lowry. He says in this interview that he felt the need to change some of the premise of the story and to give more of a social explanation for why Gawain takes up the challenge and does the things that he does. 
And Lowry in this interview says that he chose not to make Gawain a knight yet. He withholds that title, says he is, he is yet to become a knight. And he explains, quote, Then you have the anticipation and the expectation that by the end, maybe he will become a knight, or maybe even achieve what he needs to be worthy of knighthood, to be worthy of the round table, to be worthy of Camelot, end quote. And the interviewer then goes on to comment, Without the promise of the glory of knighthood waiting for him, Lowry says, why would Gawain keep going on this torturous journey? The answer the poem gives is for chivalry, honor, and duty. But Lowry wanted to make Gawain's motivation a little more external than that. So I found this whole paragraph, the quotation from Lowry himself and the elaboration and explanation by the interviewer Joanna Robinson to be strange and perplexing because I thought that all of that psychological groundwork was already there in the original poem. And the fact that Gawain technically is already a knight at the beginning of the poem doesn't diminish it at all. I think that there's a basic social and psychological reality as best I can understand, because I, I do find that whole commentary by Lowry rather perplexing. Maybe someone else can explain it more clearly. But I think it seems that he's missing a basic fact, which is that if someone has been given a title and a place of honor, that doesn't relieve the pressure on them to perform. Maybe, I don't know, if you get tenure, <laughs> then you feel like you've got it made and you can cruise for the rest of your life. But that is certainly not how knighthood works, and that's certainly not how chivalry worked. Rather, one had to constantly uphold and defend one's honor. And if one failed to do so, one was subject to a certain kind of imposter syndrome, something that I think is common again today. People getting into positions that they feel they haven't earned and are constantly afraid of being exposed as some kind of fraud. As one advances in a field, one only feels more and more pressure and more and more shame internally if one fails to measure up to how they are perceived in the eyes of others. So when you don't think that you've performed adequately, then praise can only make you feel worse because it makes you feel like more of a fraud. And I think that it's not hard to see that kind of psychology at work in the Knights of the Round Table as exemplified and personified in this poem by Gawain, by the sort of quintessential underachiever. Nevertheless, it seems in Lowry's explanation that he wants to convey that Gawain undertakes the challenge because of external pressure from his mother, from Arthur and Guinevere, from the round table, rather than a presumably internal prompting of the calling of duty, honor, chivalry, etc. So he's setting up an implicit dichotomy here between external motivations and internal, and he's putting honor and chivalry onto the internal side of the ledger. I'm not going to quibble over the classification here, but rather say that to a medieval audience, there wasn't a distinction between internal and external motivations. The idea of honor was expansive. It covered the whole range of what we would consider internal and external motives. So honor, you could say, loosely meant the respect 
do to someone based on their good performance of their social duties, the duties of their particular social role. And that respect could be respect from others or self-respect. It was both. There was no necessary divide between the two. Now, that might sound very strange or naive to a modern audience. We're much more accustomed to splitting the internal and the external. We have a much more individualistic and internal notion of success and happiness, that fulfillment should ultimately be self-respect, self-satisfaction, self-actualization, independent of social norms and expectations, right? Society is just that artificial construct that tries to impose standards upon you from outside, which are artificial and foreign to your own nature. This is the sort of individual self-developmental psychology of our time. Well, that was strange and unfamiliar to most people in the Middle Ages. It may not have been completely unknown, but it was not the normal everyday way of thinking. So when Gawain stands up and says, I should take up this challenge because I am unproven, I have not earned my place among the Knights of the Round Table, it's not necessary to parse out and distinguish, well, is that a sincere expression of his own internal wishes? Or is he merely doing it because Guinevere is nudging him in the ribs with her elbow? Uh, It doesn't, you don't have to draw that distinction. And I'll go back to that maybe and talk about that later for what it reveals about our lives, our thoughts, our experiences in contrast to the medieval world. So I would say it seems to me that Lowry fails to understand here that honor and chivalry, which of course is the code of honor of a knight, that these ethical codes are not just sort of internalized rules, they're not just neuroses or obsessions, they are part of a larger social and political order. The individual psychology of the knight fits into his bigger social world. And he says in a couple of interviews, Lowry says that he doesn't get into that because it would just be too hard to explain to a modern audience. It's too foreign. It's too alien. And it wouldn't successfully be able to account for why Gawain accepts the challenge and furthermore why once he does so, he goes so far as to behead the Green Knight rather than just maybe give him a little nick. And indeed, when I saw the movie, when I was coming out, my friend said, why, if the Green Knight was just going to return a blow to Gawain, why didn't he just give him a little gentle tap on the shoulder and then a year later, the Green Knight would do the same thing back to him? Well, the answer, I think, goes back to Gawain's role as a knight and hence as one of the guardians and guarantors of social order in the Middle Ages, which is how people thought of knights in the 12th, 13th, 14th centuries when the Arthur romances were written. These were supposed to be models of chivalry, which was a pillar of social order and peace. You really don't get any sense of that at all in the movie. Lowry seems to assume it's just too strange, it's too foreign, and so it should be replaced by the psychological explanations of Gawain's inadequacy, whereas I think that the two go hand in hand. One explains the other. They're two sides of the same coin. Gawain has the title of a knight, so now he feels the obligation to actually act like one. And if he does not maintain that honor of his knighthood, then he gets the opposite of honor, which is shame, both internal and external shame. So, okay, what does that have to do with the beheading? Well, in the Arthur mythos, 
King Arthur and his knights, who are loyal to him, are able to rule Britain and maintain internal peace because they are supposedly the strongest, most courageous, most skilled warriors in all the land, and they've been united together around this central leader. And this was seen as the kind of idealized, romanticized model of a high medieval kingdom. And it's not entirely far from reality. The code of chivalry was an ethical code that had to be developed over the course of centuries in order to harness and contain the awesome military power of the warrior on horseback. In the context of the Middle Ages, when we're talking about a world without gunpowder and a world without the population and infrastructure to be able to field large armies of infantry, a single warrior who's able to fight on horseback with stirrups, with chainmail armor, and with steel weapons like swords, maces, or battle axes, one warrior with this kind of ability and equipment could basically mow down anyone who stood against him other than a similarly trained and outfitted knight with a similar warhorse. So the knight on horseback was basically like the nuclear weapon of the Middle Ages. If they weren't somehow constrained by social convention and by a sense of honor and shame, then there was nothing to stop them from simply riding around the countryside, raiding and pillaging and causing chaos. And we know that because that's exactly what happened all through the 10th century. It was a time of constant violence, destruction, in which Western Christian society was basically held hostage to these bandit warlords. And it was gradually in the 11th century, beginning with the Peace and Truce of God movement, that knights were compelled to restrain themselves, to restrain whom they attacked. They had to swear oaths on holy relics not to attack women or children or clergy, and to only fight one another only on certain days of the week and the year, and only when some sort of legitimate cause of war was in play. And this then created the greater stability of the High Middle Ages from the 11th through the 13th centuries, which is when most of these Arthur romances were written, and written in large part as a kind of propaganda for the new ethic of chivalry. So if we look at Camelot as the idealized capital of an idealized high medieval kingdom, we know then that the existence and stability and strength of the kingdom depends upon the knights and their code of chivalry, and it also depends upon their sense of honor in the further sense that they must be willing to face off against any worthy challenger. Because if they don't accept such a challenge, that means that someone else has frightened them and could potentially disrupt or even overthrow the social order that those knights are guaranteeing. So the ability to meet an opponent in a fair fight is necessary to maintaining the social and political order and preventing it from falling back into the chaos that was seen in the 10th century. So the Green Knight is not just a frightening otherworldly creature, he is also a political problem that the Knights of the Round Table have to neutralize. And that's why it's such a tremendous problem when the Green Knight lays down his challenge and none of the knights initially are willing to take it up. 
this shows a real weakness at the foundation of Camelot's ruling power. And this accounts, I think, for one thing, for why someone has to step forward and accept the challenge, which Gawain eventually does. And it also helps to explain why Gawain goes about it in the way that he does. He very reasonably surmises that if he is given a chance of a free blow at the Green Knight's neck, then he better really aim to kill him because that will neutralize this threat. If he doesn't kill the Green Knight, then what is to stop that same giant from then going out into the countryside and swinging his axe and torching houses and raiding and raping and pillaging? So Gawain wants to finish the job once and for all. That seems to be the smart course. And he does so in the sense that he does successfully behead the Green Knight, but he doesn't know that the Green Knight is apparently unkillable. At this point, Gawain has to fulfill his side of the obligation. He cannot lose face and lose honor, not only on his own behalf, but on behalf of all of Camelot, by chickening out and failing to accept his side of the bargain. This will undermine the honor, the prestige, the authority of Camelot. So with a position at the top of society, a position of honor, there comes constant pressure to maintain and protect that position. And honor and shame are always close at hand. All of these facts and these stakes are laid out, I think, by the Green Knight himself in his opening dialogue. So when the Green Knight rides in, he asks, firstly, who is the governor of this gang? You know, basically, take me to your leader. And then he recognizes that he's talking to King Arthur, and he begins to praise King Arthur and his court. And Arthur invites the Green Knight to stay and celebrate Christmas with them, but he rejects the offer and says instead, quote, Because your acclaim is so loudly chorused, and your castle and brotherhood are called the best, the strongest men to ever mount the saddle, the worthiest knights ever known to the world, both in competition and in true combat, and since courtesy, so it's said, is championed here, I'm intrigued and attracted to your door at this time. So he's ostensibly praising Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, but there is a sarcastic undertone here, right? An undertone of skepticism, which then he is able to capitalize on very richly when the Knights fail to, at first, to take up his challenge. And so he begins to taunt them. And the poem says, so here is the house of Arthur, he scoffed, whose virtues reverberate across vast realms. Where is the fortitude and fearlessness you're so famous for, and the breathtaking bravery and the big mouth bragging, the towering reputation of the round table, skittled and scuppered by a stranger? What a scandal! You flap and you flinch, and I've not raised a finger. So the Green Knight throughout the whole poem, it's clear he is a brilliant taunter and he knows how to strike at the vulnerability of people whose reputations are so inflated. At least that is the suggestion, the implication, that they, their reputations are overblown. So the stakes of the challenge here are tremendous. They are both personal and political. The shame that Camelot will suffer if they fail to meet the Green Knight's challenge are one simple humiliation, the emotional loss of pride, and also the potential degradation and breakdown of their power. And once 
one weakness like this is exposed, then more challengers are sure to come forward until the whole system unravels. And again, the audience in the Middle Ages would have known how important those stakes were because they know that eventually Camelot does collapse. It is a fairly short-lived golden age. And it is not failure on the battlefield or failure in military prowess, but failure of character that eventually brings them down. So this, I think, lays out basically how the premises and the stakes of the story are established in the poem and in the movie. Now, what happens then? What is the nature of Gawain's journey and his experiences? Well, in the poem, the intervening year is basically glossed over. We don't know any details of what happens before Gawain, the following December, arms himself, takes up the pentangle, the five-angled star, as his symbol on his shield, and sets out to find the Green Knight at the Green Chapel. In the movie, we see him continuing to carouse and get drunk and brawl. So we have the sense that he is falling back into his familiar patterns. He even doubts his quest. He says, why would I even go and do this? Let's just forget about this green knight. But he is pressured by his mother indirectly through Arthur to fulfill his oath and obligation, and he eventually sets out. In the poem, then, we have some passages describing his journey. And it's specific in the sense that it tells us geographically exactly where Gawain went. So it's not taking place in just some fantasy alternate Britain. We know exactly where he goes on the actual map. So he travels northward through Wales to the north coast of Wales. We're not told exactly where Camelot is located in the poem, but it seems it's probably assumed to be at Caerleon, the traditional capital of Wales in the south. So he journeys north to North Wales, which is a very rugged and sparsely populated part of Britain. He travels along the coast. He goes past the Anglesey Islands. He passes by what the poem calls the Holy Head, which is another word for holy well, a sacred well that was a pilgrimage site in North Wales. He crosses the River Dee, a wide river separating North Wales from the northwestern corner of England, and he ventures into the dense and largely wild forests of far northwestern England. So this is roughly the neighborhood where the author probably lived and worked because we can tell from the dialect of Middle English that he or she uses. And in this sparsely populated forest, he miraculously is able to find a splendid castle in the woods called Eau Désert, which means in French, high desert or you know, deserted remote place. And this castle is presided over by a very hospitable and charismatic lord called Bertilac. Now, to compare, in the film, the film is actually a good deal more fantastical than the poem. The poem has some short passages that I think poignantly portray Gawain's fear and uh, terror, traveling alone through the woods with only his horse, sleeping on the ground in his armor, afraid to be caught, exposed to animals or bandits. Well, 
that is just a short section of the poem. In the movie, that section is massively blown up and a whole series of incidents, including three main principal incidents, are added in, which then create a much greater distance between the Camelot opening and the Bertillac Castle episode, which is, again, not a bad thing, but it's curious to try to understand what the function is of these added incidents, which have the effect, for one thing, of changing the narrative structure of the story. Whereas in the poem, it's a very simple beginning, middle, and end, with the Green Knight appearing at the beginning and the end. In the movie, it's more complicated and it becomes more like a picaresque novel more in the style of, say, Don Quixote, of a series of incidents. So if we say there are three main encounters that Gawain has in the film between leaving Camelot and arriving at Odiser, the first one is he encounters a scavenger, a boy who is picking over the remains of what seems to be a large battlefield with the aftermath of a battle with many dead bodies. We're never given an explanation of what this battle or war is or who was engaged, but the scavenger claims that in this recent battle, the king slew 960 of his enemies by his own hand. And this is curious. It's obvious, if you listen to my lecture on the historical King Arthur, uh, it's obvious where this reference comes from. It comes from the Historia Britannum, which is a 9th century Welsh historical chronicle written around 830 in North Wales, so in the same basic area where this story is taking place. And the Historia Britannum is the first text, the earliest surviving text, that gives any sort of narrative or explanation of who Arthur was. And it says that he was a battle commander who won a series of 12 battles against the Saxons, the final and greatest of which was at Mount Baden. And the Historia claims that Arthur killed 960 of the enemy by his own hand. Obviously a fantastical tall tale, so already in the, the first time that we get a story about Arthur, it's massively exaggerating his prowess as a fighter. So why did Lowry and the movie makers drop in that reference into this little scene where Gawain encounters the scavenger? You know, maybe it's to emphasize the violence, the bleakness of the Middle Ages, perhaps to show how the supposed glories of war and of a hero like Arthur always have this dark side of death and destruction, which we see vividly, or I should say hazily, laid out before us in the battlefield scene. One can tell pretty quickly that this scavenger is a no-good character. He's highly suspicious and wily. And so it's not too shocking that he lays a trap. He directs Gawain to a certain route through the woods. And once Gawain is in the forest, he's then accosted by a group of bandits. So the scavenger was, in fact, a thief and a bandit. They attack him, they rob him, they even take his horse, and they leave him behind tied up in the woods. Gawain has a moment of horror and despair where he imagines that he might simply lay down and die and never be seen again in this remote place in the woods. But he's able to rouse himself and free himself from his bonds and proceed forward on foot. This scene is interesting for one thing historically because it shows you the massive difference that it could make 
to dismount, to unhorse a knight. You know, his power, Gawain's power, is now massively reduced. And it also, the whole scene helps to show the real dangers of traveling alone in remote places in the medieval world. Except for certain times and places of greater stability, it was truly dangerous to travel out there, even on the roads, unprotected, without a retinue. And that's something knights were expected to do. You may have heard some people will sometimes say the reason why Britons drive on the left side of the road is related to jousting. And it's not directly a result of jousting, but it is in fact related. The reason why the custom developed of always going on the left is so that when you passed someone else on the road, you could have your right arm ready with a weapon to defend yourself against them. Because anyone coming the other way on a road or a path could be a bandit ready to rob you. So you had to kind of make your own law. And part of the code of chivalry, again, was that when you were out traveling, you protect people. You fight bandits. And that was a pretty important social service. So this incident, there are all kinds of meanings one can take from it, but it does fit into the atmosphere of fear and danger that the poem, I think, tries to convey in that passage of Gawain going through the woods of North Wales and the Northwest Midlands. In the film, after Gawain gets away from the bandits, he takes shelter in a cottage, which apparently is empty and abandoned. But while he is sleeping there, he then encounters a spectral appearance of a young woman. And this young woman gives him a task, a quest, you could say, to dive down into a spring-fed pond and retrieve her head. So we learn that she is, in fact, the spirit of a dead woman who was beheaded. Now, if you happen to be a medievalist, you would know right away, obviously, this is St. Winifred, who was a very revered Welsh saint, who reportedly, according to hagiographies of St. Winifred, she was a Welsh woman in North Wales who lived in the 600s, so not long after the supposed time of King Arthur. And she was betrothed to marry a local magnate, but she broke off this engagement and instead pledged to join a convent, become a nun, which was a common thing to do in the Middle Ages if you really didn't want to marry the person you were engaged to. It was something legitimate you could do, say, no, no, I'm a nun. Well, this lord was none too happy with this, and he tried to force her to consummate the relationship through rape, and she resisted to protect her honor in the medieval terminology, since for women, honor was tied very closely to their sexual purity. And so the lord, in his wrath, beheaded Winifred. Well, Winifred's uncle came in the aftermath of this murder. He found Winifred's head and replaced it on her body, at which point she came back to life, looking good as new, except for a white scar on her neck. She became known as a holy woman, and then afterwards, her remains, her relics, gave rise, as they touched the ground, they gave rise to more wells and springs coming out of the earth. And those wells and springs in North Wales became holy sites, sites of pilgrimage and healing. So it makes a lot of sense that Winifred's story and an encounter with Winifred would be worked in some way into the Sir Gawain story. For one thing, 
it is alluded to. As I mentioned, in the narrative, in the original poetic narrative, it says that Gawain passes by Holy Head, which is simply another word for the Holy Well that was associated with Winifred's head. And clearly, the Pearl poet who wrote the poem saw some sort of link or connection between the two stories of St. Winifred and the Green Knight because of this theme of beheading and of coming back to life after being beheaded. And it seems that if you look at early Christian, early medieval folklore in Europe, there was a, you could say, a cult of the severed head. There was a common widespread belief that certain holy people or supernaturally powerful people could come back to life after being beheaded and grow only more powerful, including the power to give prophecies and perform miracles. And there's a hint of that again in the movie where Gawain puts Winifred's head back on. She sort of comes back to life, but then her head rolls off again. And then the severed head speaks to Gawain and says something, most of which I couldn't understand. I couldn't make it out. But she, at one point, says, the Green Knight is someone you know. So she has some sort of supernatural insight into what Gawain's quest is and who the Green Knight actually is. So it's a kind of prophecy. Winifred is also a taskmaster. She gives Gawain a quest when he is there at her house by her holy well. And he learns something. He learns something about proper behavior, chivalry, and the code of honor with respect to women. So it fits in with this theme of Gawain being measured and judged by how he relates to women. Okay, the third episode in the film is, at least I would set it out as another incident, is an encounter where he's traveling across the open heath on foot and he sees a series of giants kind of marching together up a valley and he tries to ask one of the giants to pick him up and carry him on her shoulder but she she doesn't somehow she has some kind of interaction with a fox who's hanging out with Gawain Gawain doesn't get the ride and that's it. I don't know what that scene is about. <laughs> I don't understand why it was put in. It was visually really cool. Maybe that's the main reason. I don't really get it. And in my opinion, it sort of diminishes the, the amazement and the grandeur of seeing the Green Knight because he, even the Green Knight, is now dwarfed by these massive, you know, 500-foot-tall giants. So maybe that scene was added in just for visual effect, maybe to round out the rule of threes, to give Gawain three uh, encounters with some sort of possibly threatening beings before he then gets to Bertilak's castle, which then also acts out the rule of threes very thoroughly in the original story. But not so much, not as far as I can tell in the movie. So the Bertilax castle section of the story is the last part I'll talk about before I briefly discuss the ending. So in both the poem and the film, Gawain continues his journey until he reaches this castle of Odiser, which seems to appear almost miraculously amidst the woods. And he's welcomed in by the lord of the castle, Bertilak, along with two other people, Bertilak's wife, who's a beautiful lady who is not named, and an older woman, a crone, as she's referred to in the poem, who is apparently the attendant in some way of the lady. 
and in the movie she's portrayed as blind and wearing gauze over her eyes, very reminiscent of the gauze that we saw Morgan Le Fay place over her eyes as part of her sort of divinatory magical ceremonies. So there seems to be some connection in both the poem and the film, some sort of magical quality to the castle that recalls the Green Knight, but the relationship is unclear and mysterious. In the poem, the occurrences in the Bertelak castle form most of the middle part of the story. It's really important and pivotal, whereas it's truncated and downplayed in the movie by comparison. So what goes on in the castle in the poem and why is it so important? Well, Gawain's host welcomes him according to the rules of hospitality, and Gawain, observing the rules of chivalry, pledges himself to the service of the lady and her older companion. So he's agreeing to act in a courteous manner to his host and hostess. And furthermore, Bertilak agrees to give him food and shelter, which he badly needs, for at least three full days until it gets to New Year's Day, the midpoint of the Christmas time, at which point Gawain will have to venture off further into the woods to the Green Chapel to meet the Green Knight. And Bertilak in the poem is a big, jovial man with a vibrant personality, a sense of humor. Although he may have a sinister undertone, he forms a sort of moment of respite for Gawain. And he proposes a further deal with Gawain, saying, while you're here, since it's Christmas time, it's a time of celebration, each day I will go out and hunt, and whatever I catch, I will bring back and give to you as a kind of Christmas gift. And in return, anything that you gain, anything that you obtain or receive as a gift while you are in the house, you then have to give to me. And this seems like a fair enough bargain. And as Gawain says, I don't see what I would be getting while I'm here in this house. Everything here belongs to you. So he agrees to this exchange out of respect for his host. And what we see here being set up is a sort of game within a game. So on the one hand, the overall frame of the story is the beheading game. This was actually, believe it or not, a repeating motif that appears in other earlier medieval stories. For instance, there's an epic poem from Ireland from the 9th century where three warriors are all competing with one another for a championship. And as the sort of final challenge, a churl or a troll monster presents himself and makes the same offer that the Green Knight makes at Camelot, says, any one of you can take a swing at me if in return I get to hit you back the next day and only one of them accepts and fulfills the challenge. And so the churl, rather than beheading this hero, he instead proclaims him the winner. So that idea of the beheading game, it's probably connected to the cult of the severed head, which I mentioned before, the idea that some people survive beheading and only become more powerful and gain sort of prophetic power. Well, that is the frame then of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, but now it's being combined with a further game within a game, the game of the exchange of winnings, which also is a repeating motif in medieval literature. So they set up this game, and then within that, there's a third game or a third challenge. It's the seduction challenge. So Gawain celebrates, eats and drinks with Bertilak and his company. He goes to bed early in the morning. At dawn, 
the lady comes in, wakes up Gawain, and starts speaking to him and really flirting with him. And she says at one point, you know, you're from Camelot, and I'm told in Camelot people know all about courtly love and talking love. That's the phrase in the original poem, talking love, which today we would call it flirtation. And the woman is clearly in addition to being beautiful, she's charming and witty, and she's able to engage in banter with Gawain, and she tries to seduce him. In these points, in these seduction scenes, the lady, who is unnamed, clearly plays on the problems and the contradictions in the notion of chivalry. So if a knight is chivalrous, for one thing, he should respect his host and give all possible courtesy to his host, which would include not sleeping with his wife. So he has to resist these advances, and it's somewhat difficult for him, partly because it clearly was tempting. You know, the audience would have known that Gawain is a ladies' man, that he enjoys flirtation and sex, and so he clearly would want to indulge with this woman who not only is attractive, but also has some power. She is his hostess. A problem is that according to the rules of chivalry and of courtly love that were being propounded, a knight should also be obedient to women and should never turn away the attentions of a woman because that is an insult and disrespect. And a lot of courtly literature even suggested that indulging a woman, even if it violates someone's marriage bonds, is still the better, more noble thing to do. And you can see some extreme cases, like the Tristan and Isolde story, which actually goes so far as to say that love, passion, attraction that violates marriage is higher, is a higher calling than marriage. It is in some way more pure or more sacred than the marriage bond. So there's a tension here, and the lady plays on it. So in this first seduction attempt, the first morning, she is ready to leave. She's giving up. And Gawain says, oh, I hope you've had a nice time talking and flirting with me. And she says, well, actually, you've insulted me because if you really think I'm such a beautiful, wonderful lady, you should be begging me for a kiss, which is the sort of thing that an ideal light knight would do to his lady love. He would ask for a kiss. So he kind of plays along and says, all right, OK, please kiss me. And she does. Now, this sets up an awkward situation, right? Because that afternoon, Bertilak comes back and he presents what he's caught on the hunt, which is a deer. And he says, now you have to give me whatever you have gained, whatever your winnings are. So right there in the Great Hall, in front of everybody, Gawain kisses Bertilak right on the lips. And this is clearly funny. Okay, it's, it's awkward, <laughs> you know, here are two men who barely know each other, kissing one another out there in view of everyone. It's, it's risque, for one thing because it's a same-sex kiss, and also because it implies that somebody has kissed Gawain, and we don't know who it is. So it has an element of intrigue. And there's a funny exchange where Bertilak says, oh, well, thank you. Now, please tell me, where did you get this kiss? And Gawain says, well, that's not part of our deal. <laughs> so there's a lot of humor and innuendo in the Bertilak episode. And none of that appears in the movie. The movie, I would say, is completely humorless. And it's maybe because there's this sort of change in tone, this levity to the Bertilak section of the story that it got drastically cut back. In the movie, 
we do see some version of the Bertilak story. But basically, Gawain spends his time with the lady, and he does see that she's intelligent. We, we see that she reads and writes books. She's a painter. So she's a worldly woman and intellectual and clearly is very appealing to Gawain. But there's only one seduction attempt, whereas in the poem, there are three. So there's a second day, then when the lady comes back again, tries again to seduce Gawain, is only able to get a kiss. And once again, Bertilak comes back from the hunt, and there's an elaborate description of the hunt about the, the gore, the violence of tracking down these wild animals and slaughtering them. So the second day, it's a, a wild boar that Bertilak catches. He presents it to Gawain, and in return, Gawain gives him a big wet kiss. Now, of course, as some people have pointed out, this scene, even as it appears in the movie where Bertilak leans down and kisses Gawain, has a very strong homoerotic overtone. And I saw that someone complained on Twitter and said, oh, this is no good. This is clearly not authentic. Medievalists won't approve of this. And a thousand medievalists jumped right onto that thread and said, no, quite the opposite. There wasn't enough queer subtext <laughs> in the movie version as compared to the medieval poem, where it's very strong and repeated. And at this time, it was not all that unusual for men who have friendly relations with one another to kiss, even to kiss on the lips. It wasn't necessarily seen as sexual, but it's at least had an erotic undertone, which could raise eyebrows, which could be a little risque. Through most of the Middle Ages, sexual matters, including homosexuality, were seen as an arena of sin and the danger of sin, but not as particularly important. Sexual sins were comparatively pretty minor. It was the sort of thing you could indulge in and then just, you know, confess, do some penance, and forget about it. And it wasn't seen as a big social or political threat. But that was starting to change somewhat in the 14th century. After 1300, medieval society came under increasing strain. Internal conflicts, food shortages, famines, and eventually the plague in the mid-1300s. And people were looking for a scapegoat. They were looking for impurities, sources of weakness, infiltrating society. And they turned against Jews, they turned against lepers, and they also started to look more seriously at homosexuality. And pretty early on in the 1300s, there was a big incident that sort of, you could say, heralded this new fear and paranoia around homosexual sex. And that was the destruction of the Templar Order, when the King of France initiated a campaign to arrest and interrogate and in many cases execute the Templars in order to destroy this powerful chivalric order. And they leveled all kinds of trumped up accusations at the Templars, one of which was homosexual sodomy. Of course, it was not the main accusation. It was sort of down the list below others like idolatry and profaning the sacraments, which were still a much bigger deal than any sort of sexual sins. But there was increasing concern, and specifically in England, King Edward II was highly unpopular and eventually overthrown. One of the problems was that he had male favorites, in quotation marks, whom he indulged and showered with titles and offices, who very clearly were his lovers. And again, later in the 1300s, 
similar rumors came out about Richard II, another sort of incompetent and unpopular king. And it's likely that this poem, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, was written during the reign of Richard II. So people by that time were aware of homosexuality as a potential sort of impure, contaminating presence in society. And that sort of anxiety may have then played into both the danger and the humor of these suggestive scenes between Gawain and Bertelach. So the third morning, the lady comes again, and she tries a different tack. So clearly, Gawain and the lady are testing one another's boundaries. And Gawain has to negotiate and figure out the correct balance. How far can he go in indulging his flirtation with the lady and his mutual attraction with the lady without going too far and betraying both his his respect for his host and this winnings exchange game. If he goes all the way and has sex with the lady, it's going to be awfully difficult for him to then pass that gift on <laughs> to Bertelak when he comes back from the hunt. So he's engaged in a complicated push and pull with the lady. And the lady sees that in order to really test Gawain, she has to try something different. So rather than just trying to have sex with him, she starts to offer him crucial gifts that she knows he won't be able to refuse. So first he, she offers a magical ring, a ring with a bright red gemstone, which happens, by the way, to be reminiscent of the bright red flashing eyes of the Green Knight, as they're described in the opening scenes. And she says that this ring is magically protective and that no harm can come to him when he wears it. So somehow she seems to know that Gawain is headed towards likely doom and that he's going to want a gift like this. But Gawain is able to say no, because he knows that if he accepts it, he will just have to then hand it over to Bertelak. So he refuses. And part of his reasoning for refusing it is to say, it's, it's too valuable, it's too fine an object, I can't accept it. So then she offers a green sash of simple green cloth, which likewise will protect him if he wears it around his body. Now, in the movie, for some reason, the story is changed so that Gawain already had that green sash as a gift from his mother, Morgan Le Fay, but he then lost it when he was robbed by the bandits, and now it reappears again. I don't know exactly what to make of that. Does this mean that the bandits were somehow in league with Bertelak and the lady? Did they pass some information to them? But that's left unclear in the movie. In the poem, this is the first appearance of the sash or girdle. And because it's a much cruder item, it's harder for Gawain to say no to it. And he ultimately gives in and says, all right, I will take it. And he keeps it for himself and wears it secretly under armor, and he does not hand it over to Bertelak. So he violates the terms of that agreement, the winnings exchange with Bertelak. And in the final day, Bertelak comes back with a fox. And the fox is the animal that represents cleverness, craftiness, deception, which clearly has some parallel to the lady and her clever pursuit of Gawain's weakness, and he continues to have the green sash on under his armor when he finally sets out from the castle up the path into the deep forest to find the green chapel. And in both versions, the poem and the film, he is still wearing it when he finally then finds the green knight. 
And in the poem, it's described that he reaches the green chapel. And it's not actually a literal chapel. It's not a building. It's just a sort of earthen mound with a hollowed-out chamber inside. And when Gawain reaches it, he hears the grinding of the grindstone as the Green Knight sharpens his blade, ready to decapitate Gawain. So that sets up the final encounter with the Green Knight, which plays out differently in the poem as opposed to the movie. But to stop for a second, if we look at the structure of the story in the poem with the three encounters with the lady and the gift exchange with Bertilak, the conversations with the lady and the sort of flirtatious repartee that they engage in, where they test one another's limits and boundaries, this is clearly the heart of the story in the medieval version. These encounters form a game within a game within a game. There's the game of flirtation, the game of seduction, and this seduction game, this temptation game, which also is a repeating theme in medieval literature, is then combined as part of the gift exchange game. And Gawain must complete and pass the gift exchange challenge in order to then complete the larger overarching challenge of the whole story, which is the beheading game. So three different kinds of games are here embedded one within another within another. And this narrative structure, I think, is crucial to the payoff and the message of the story, which is about the ambiguity of human actions. Even when one has a very highly articulated moral code or ethos like chivalry, even still, the same single action can have multiple meanings, can be both honorable and shameful at once, depending on what story or what game one is participating in. And one is always engaged in more than one game at once. An action does not have one simple, straightforward meaning. It's embedded in more than one story. So Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, I think, is about this complexity and ambiguity and how impossible it is to decide exactly the right thing to do at any moment and how to judge one's own actions when one is engaged in multiple stories, multiple games at once. So let's talk about the ending of the poem. So here's a spoiler alert if you don't want to know how the medieval epic ends. Let's talk about how it ends, what the ending of the story conveys. So in that version, Gawain gets to the Green Chapel. He presents himself to the Green Knight, but he's wearing the sash that he got from the lady under his armor. The knight lifts his axe twice to test whether Gawain will hold steady or flinch and try to run away. And twice Gawain does flinch and the knight holds back. And remember, the green knight is a great taunter and he takes this as an opportunity to taunt Gawain and says, you're flinching, but I didn't flinch when you held up the axe to chop off my head. Gawain quite rightly retorts, well, if you chop off my head, I can't just pick it up and put it back on like you did. <laughs> so he points out that this is not really an entirely fair game. They're working under two different sets of rules because they're two different kinds of beings. Well, the third time, finally, Gawain holds himself steady, does not flinch, and the Green Knight brings his axe down and just nicks the edge of Gawain's neck, leaving a mark. And Gawain leaps up and says, that's it, I've completed my pledge, the game is over. 
And the Green Knight says, all right, fine. I just gave you a little nick. Now, there's a lot of meaning and resonance here. For one thing, it's reminiscent of the story of St. Winifred, right? Where she has a scar around her neck, which for her is a mark of honor. Whereas to Gawain, now, he sees this mark as an indication of his shame, but at least he wasn't beheaded and killed. He gets to live and go back to Camelot and continue his life. So now that the game is over, we suddenly get some explanations, some revelations. For one thing, the Green Knight then reveals himself to be Sir Bertilak. So we learn that they are one and the same. So you could say the Green Knight was actually Sir Bertilak enchanted and transformed into this superhuman form by the power of Morgan Le Fay. And he further explains that the old lady, the crone who's been attending the lady in the castle, is also Morgan Le Fay in disguise, watching and orchestrating events. Now, you could also see it the reverse way, I think, that Bertilak is a form of the Green Knight, that the Green Knight is this sort of supernatural, mysterious force that Morgan Le Fay summons, who then temporarily took on a human form in order to host and test Gawain and put him through these trials. But nevertheless, the knight now explains that he knows everything that has happened, and he's he and Morgan Le Fay have been behind it all. And he knows that Gawain took the sash and did not give it back. And in that way, he violated the rules of the exchange game. But the knight says, that's okay, that's just a small fault, not something to worry about. And for that small minor trespass, I gave you a little minor nick on your neck. Apart from that, you've acted well, you can now go back to Camelot. So Gawain retrieves his horse and goes back to Camelot and explains what he has done. So at this climactic moment, the poem says, again, as translated by Simon Armitage, the poem says, Hoisted and aimed, the axe hurtled downwards, the blade bearing down on the knight's bare neck, a ferocious blow, but far from being fatal, it skewed to one side, just skimming the skin, and finally snicking the fat of the flesh, so that bright red blood shot from body to earth. Seeing it shining on the snowy ground, Gawain leapt forward, a spear's length at least, grabbed hold of his helmet and rammed it on his head, brought his shield to his side with a shimmy of his shoulder, then brandished his sword before blurting out brave words, because never since birth as his mother's babe was he half as happy as here and now. Enough swiping, sir. You've swung your last swing. I've borne one blow without backing out. Go for me again, and you'll get some by return. And the Green Knight, of course, is bemused, and the poem goes on to say, the warrior steps away and leans on his weapon, props the handle in the earth and slouches on the head, and studies how Gawain is standing his ground, bold in his bearing, brave in his actions, armed and ready. In his heart, he admires him. With volume but less violence in his voice, he replied, with reaching words with which rippled and rang, Be a might less feisty, fearless young fellow. No insulting or heinous incident has happened beyond the game we agreed on in the court of your king. One strike was promised, consider it served. So I'll read how the poem describes Gawain's return to Camelot and how it's understood when he arrives back at the court. 
It says, quote, So he winds through the wilds of the world once more, Gawain on Gringolet by the grace of God, under a roof sometimes and sometimes roughing it, and in valleys and vales had adventures and victories, but time is too tight to tell how they went. The nick on his neck was healed by now. Thereabouts he had bound the belt like a baldric, slantwise as a sash from shoulder to side, laced in a knot looped below his left arm, a sign that his honor was stained by sin. So safe and sound, he sets foot in court, and when clansmen had heard of their comrade's return, happiness cannoned through the echoing halls. The king kissed his knight, and so did the queen, and Gawain was embraced by his band of brothers, who made eager enquiries, and he answered them all with the tale of his trial and tribulations, and the challenge at the chapel, and the great green chap, and the love of the lady which led to the belt. And he showed them the scar at the side of his neck, confirming his breach of faith like a bad of blame. Regard, said Gawain, grabbing the girdle, through this I suffered a scar to my sin. For my loss of faith I was physically defaced. What a coveting coward I became, it would seem. I was tainted by untruth, and this its token I will drape across my chest till the day I die. For man's crimes can be covered but never made clean. Once entwined with sin, man is twinned for all time. So Gawain here is saying that the scar and the girdle, which he has covering over it, are marks of shame. So he thinks he's acted dishonorably. He's failed the test. And yet, he also says he is twinned. In some way, he's been split. He has two sides. And this then leads the way for Arthur and the men of the round table to leap in and reverse the meaning of the whole episode and assign the opposite meaning to the same symbol. So the poem says, The king gave comfort, then laughter filled the castle, and in friendly accord the company of the court allowed that each lord belonging to their order, every knight in the brotherhood, should bear such a belt, a bright green belt worn obliquely to the body, crosswise like a sash, for the sake of this man. So that slanting green stripe was adopted as their sign, and each knight who held it was honored forever. So Arthur is a very kind uncle here, is jumping in and saying, no, 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 we're proud that you completed the beheading challenge successfully, and we see this same object, this same green sash, as representing honor, not shame. So I think this drives home how honor and shame are two sides of the same coin. And on the one hand, the more honored you are, the more pressure you feel to maintain your reputation and the more subject you are to shame. But likewise, the more you confess and show your shame, the more others may see you as honorable. And the ambiguity, the double meaning of that one symbol reflects the ambiguity of Gawain's actions. So although he failed in the winnings exchange agreement with Bertillac, it allowed him then to succeed in completing and surviving the beheading game. And I think the complex embedded structure of these games makes it possible to interpret Gawain's actions in a very positive light and to see him as heroic despite his flaws. When the lady is trying to seduce Gawain, she's of course playing on 
his not only his sexual attraction but also his self-image and the the sort of pride and satisfaction he gets from the admiration of women and when that is not enough to get him to violate the deal the winnings exchange deal she then comes up with the ring and the sash which play to a different instinct to his will to live Initially, when Gawain jumps in at the beginning of the story and offers to take up the Green Knight's challenge, that can be seen as reckless, right? And as part of the kind of heedless recklessness of youth, even the self-destructiveness of youth, that Gawain, as this young man who is, metaphorically speaking, himself still green, that he is throwing himself into into danger and even contemplating the idea of dying. And as probably all of us know, young people are often the most heedless, the most reckless. But then later, when he's in Bertilak's castle, he sort of rediscovers his desire to live and to choose life over honor, over the strictest interpretation, the strictest demands of honor. But later he blames himself and re regrets his actions. He, he now seems to want honor again, even more than life. Now his actions are ambiguous because you could say, well, he failed Bertilak in the winnings exchange game, but he successfully matched the Green Knight in the beheading game, so his record, you could say, is mixed or it's blemished. And yet, in the poem, Bertilak is the Green Knight. They're one and the same. And so the Green Knight then is the one person who can forgive Gawain's violation of the gift exchange agreement. So that one failure has been absolved. Now, you could say that in a sense, he violated and, and failed the, the beheading game because he went in to his final encounter with the Green Knight with this magical sash protecting him. And you could say, well, that's a kind of cheating. He wasn't really accepting, wasn't really following through on the terms of the agreement. But is that necessarily true? The agreement said the Green Knight can exchange the same blow back to Gawain. It doesn't say that Gawain isn't allowed to have a magical talisman protecting him from death. Arguably, maybe it's dishonest or deceptive that he did have such a talisman protecting him and he didn't tell the Green Knight. But as we've learned, for one thing, the Green Knight knows because the Green Knight is Bertilak, and he knows everything that's been going on. And furthermore, you could say, well, look, if Gawain wasn't supposed to have a magical talisman protecting him, well, what about the initial challenge by the Green Knight? When the Green Knight issued the challenge, he did not explain that he was incapable of being killed by decapitation. Gawain didn't know that going in, and he took a course of action that was appropriate without that knowledge that that the Green Knight was a magical being who could just pick his head up and put it back on and survive. So you could say that the Green Knight's initial offer was deceptive. It was at least as deceptive and misleading as Gawain's actions in going in to the Green Chapel wearing the Green Sash. So arguably, they're even. There's a symmetry to the beginning and the end, to the Green Knight submitting himself to Gawain's blow with the knowledge, the secret, that he was unkillable, and Gawain submitting himself to the Green Knight with the secret sash protecting him. So there is, I think, a perfect ambiguity here, a perfectly constructed ambiguity, where Gawain's actions 
in these tests could be seen as doubly deceptive and doubly violating his oaths to Bertillac and to the Green Knight. Or you could see it in the opposite way, that his actions were entirely fair and honorable under the circumstances. And I'm sure that when this poem was read or recited, it allowed for discussions, right, about what do you make of Gawain's actions? And do you think it is reasonable for Gawain to feel so guilty and ashamed of his actions? Or is it reasonable for Arthur and the court to say, no, everything you've done is honorable and this makes you a hero? Or is the truth somewhere in between? So the movie does not end with this same sort of note of ambiguity and double meaning. It plays out differently. So what do we see in the film? Well, in the film, there's only one seduction attempt by the lady, and she is able to perform a sexual act on Gawain and then gives him the sash. Then as Gawain is leaving, heading out of the castle, he's sort of caught by Sir Bertilac, who says, I think you have something to give me, and then he kisses Gawain. We don't see the hunting scenes, and the director, David Lowry, said, well, we didn't want to go on a long excursion where we move away from Gawain's viewpoint, which, you know, is fair enough. He's the movie maker. That's his decision. The hunting scenes, they do get a bit tedious in reading them in the poem. They go on pretty long and have a lot of detail, but it's clear that they have a lot of symbolic meaning here, right? Hunting also is a game. And it's a deadly game. It's a game of life and death. It's an uneven game. You could say in that way, it's like the beheading game between Gawain and the Green Knight. It's an uneven, unfair game. It has sexual overtones. And the gory details of catching and killing these animals, like the boar and the fox in the poem, clearly have a symbolic resonance in the sexual flirtation game and the lady's pursuit of Sir Gawain. That does not appear in the movie. And there's only one seduction scene before then Gawain suits up and leaves and heads to the Green Chapel. He finds the Green Chapel, which is an actual ruined building in the forest, very beautifully filmed. After a long time, the Green Knight awakens. He's not sharpening his blade. He just awakens and takes up his axe and prepares to behead Gawain. And Gawain twice flinches and pulls away from the blade before then the Green Knight sort of gives up and allows him to run away. And so then we see a long scene that's original to the movie, not in the poem, in which Gawain gets to his horse, returns to Camelot, and we see a long montage, a montage without speech or dialogue, which shows a life that Gawain then lives in this version of the story. He becomes Arthur's successor. When Arthur dies, Gawain takes up rulership as king at the head of the round table. His reign apparently is not very prosperous. There's a lot of war and he has a son. He fathers a son by his girlfriend, Essel. He then takes the child away, uh, casts aside Essel, marries a higher status woman, raises the son to be his successor, but he is killed in battle in what seemed to be sort of endless wars plaguing the kingdom. And eventually enemies, barbarians of some sort, come to break down the doors of Camelot And Gawain, who has been wearing the sash around his body this whole time, gives up, takes the sash off, and his head falls off. So again, there's this reference to the cult of the severed head, the idea of someone having special powers after having been decapitated and revived. 
and the apparently the magic of the green sash is what's been keeping him alive this whole time. But the sash in this version of the story clearly represents guilt and shame. And his failure to face the green knight on fair terms. It represents his his cowardice and the secret shame that he's been carrying around with him in his whole life as a king. And his reign is a failure. All of this, of course, has is is quite different from the Arthurian mythology, right? Where Arthur is deposed and Gawain is never a successor, much less a king in his own right. This is all invented for, for the movie. After Gawain gives up and allows himself to die while his kingdom is falling apart and being overthrown. We then flash back to the Green Chapel, and we see that apparently that whole alternate life was all a vision. It was all imaginary. And he's still there at the Green Chapel. And this is a fairly common literary technique that appears, for instance, it's used famously in the Ambrose Bierce short story, An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge where a Confederate officer is about to be executed by hanging from a bridge. He escapes, goes back home, and then just as he gets back home, he feels a pain in his neck, and you realize that, in fact, it was all imaginary. He is actually being hanged. And that story, my friend mentioned it to me, this this same technique was sort of famously pioneered in that Ambrose Beer story. The message of it seems to be that death in war is in no way glorious or honorable. It's all just a waste and for nothing. So the contrast between the horrors of the war and the comfort and pleasure of the home sort of drive home how how needless and meaninglessly wasteful the war is. Well, the message seems to be very different in this movie, in accord with the different sort of themes and emphases of this movie, where the home, Camelot, is not all that appealing, and it doesn't represent love and family and safety. It's a world that is just as cold and just as harsh as the wilderness and the Green Chapel. So in this interpretation, Gawain's decision to face the Green Knight is indeed a kind of self-destruction. It's a decision to leave behind the life and the person that he has been back in Camelot. So what ultimately happens is Gawain realizes that the life that he would lead if he survived and went back to Camelot with his shame would be poisoned. And so he instead takes the sash off and casts it aside and again submits himself to the Green Knight for a third time and third time's a charm. The Green Knight says, all right, off with your head. And he raises up his axe and is ready to swing and then cut to black, the movie is over. So <laughs> so what are we to make of this? Well, for one thing, we lose Gawain's return to Camelot as it appears in the original poem. And we lose this scene which tells us the ambiguity of his actions and the ambiguity of what the green sash represents. And in the movie, the green sash seems to symbolize his weakness and his shame and his tie, his dependency upon the world of Camelot and particularly on his mother, which he now finally casts aside and faces his fate. And this technique of showing his alternate possible life that he could have lived, which he now rejects, it's also reminiscent of a number of other movies. It's become a kind of common technique in movies. You might think of The Last Temptation of Christ, Martin Scorsese's movie about Christ, where he is 
suffering on the cross, and then he is tempted by imagining that he comes down off the cross and is able to go back to ordinary life. So he's sort of tempted to wish that he was not this sacrificial savior and that he could just live an ordinary life at home with family. He marries Mary Magdalene, has children, etc. And then he realizes that it's all imaginary and he's still back on the cross. There's also a similar montage at the end of La La Land, right, where the, the Emma Stone character decides she cannot live this life with the jazz musician, but then she imagines it uh, in her head, sort of runs through the whole narrative in, again, in a silent montage form without dialogue. And then we go back to the reality of her real life. And in the movie, it seems that they use this technique again, embedded into the ending of the Gawain story for, well, unclear reasons. I didn't really know. I didn't know exactly what to make of it when walking out of the movie theater. But if we go back to the director David Lowry's interview with Vanity Fair, he makes it clear that he had a specific purpose in mind for why he added in that montage. And he explains that it was supposed to justify the ultimate ending, where Gawain casts aside his magical protection and possibly is then beheaded and dies. And he says, quote, that's a happy ending. He faces his fate bravely, and there's honor and integrity in that. But that doesn't mean he's dead, that he's killed. He received the blow that he was dealt, and all is set right within the universe of the film. So really, you could say that the ending in the movie was designed to take away the ambiguity in the poem. Gawain does not break one oath in order to honor another or to protect himself from death. Rather, he goes all the way and fulfills the total requirement of honor. And that then, that death or possible death at the ending is preferable to the flawed and failed life that he would lead if he went back and became king as his ambition leads him to fantasize. And in another interview with Cinema Blend, he goes on and says, quote, my hope is that you leave with a smile on your face and the feeling that it is truly a happy ending. I wanted there to be a sense that this character has arrived at the place he needs to be in, regardless of what happens to him after the film cuts to black. But I didn't want to impose my own idea, because it doesn't matter. He's going to die someday. Maybe he got his head chopped off in that moment. Maybe he dies of old age later in life. But he will die. We all die. What's important is that we know we are becoming the best we can be. That we are living our lives with goodness and integrity, with a sense of righteousness that is not defined by greatness or legacy, but by our own personal sense of worth. End quote. So I think there's a lot packed in here. For one thing, Lowry, in this instance, seems to be saying that he wanted to see Gawain completely follow the code of honor all the way to the letter. So this is very different from his earlier comments about the earlier elements in the movie, where he seems to be saying honor is not a sufficient explanation of Gawain's actions. Here he's saying, well, his final fulfillment and completion of the beheading game is driven by a total commitment to honor and a fear of the shame and the failure that would ultimately follow if he failed this test. 
However, Lowry is careful to say that he's defining honor as something entirely personal, as a matter of self-regard, right? Becoming your best self. He says, quote, that we are living our lives with goodness and integrity with a sense of righteousness that is not defined by greatness or legacy, but by our own personal sense of worth. So again, he's drawing this bright line, this bright distinction between honor, righteousness, integrity, as perceived and judged by others, as opposed to as perceived and judged internally by ourselves. Now, that is fair enough if that's how he sees things. But in my personal opinion, it left the movie off with a sort of confusing and unsatisfying effect. The only ambiguity that is left when you walk out of the theater is did Gawain live or die? Was he actually killed or did some sort of deus ex machina jump in at the last moment so that he survives? But there is no ambiguity as far as you can see in the way the film is presented as to whether or not Gawain did the right thing, whether he made the right choice. So that ambiguity is lost. And in the medieval version of the story, at least as it survives in this poem from the 14th century, honor is very, it's something very expansive, and it's personal as well as social. There's no necessary divide there. And David Lowry's reinterpretation, it changes it to set up the greatest possible distinction between social achievement on the one hand and self-satisfaction or self-respect on the other. And that, I think, is a reflection of the greater mood of disillusionment and of anomie in the modern world, which technically anomie means inability to identify with or internalize the norms of wider society. So in the high Middle Ages, and still to a great degree in the late Middle Ages, although things were starting to get more complicated in the 1300s by the time Sir Gawain and the Green Knight was written, there was a fairly widely held philosophy that said that society was an organically unified body and that all people as members of society had their special roles to play, like the different limbs and organs in a human body that all worked together to keep the body alive and healthy, and that a person should derive their individual self-worth from successfully performing and virtuously performing their own social role in a way that earns them the respect and the appreciation of others, whether their peers or their superiors or their inferiors. In the modern world, there's been a shift towards a certain sort of individualism, which tends to cast society's judgments as always tyrannical and repressive and in some way false, that the, the perception of a person in the eyes of others is always a distortion, and each person can only truly understand himself or herself internally. And this way of seeing things, I think, is often propagated and reinforced by the entertainment industry, by Hollywood, which is constantly giving us plot lines about nonconformists, people who defy the community, who set themselves apart, the rebels. And in a way, I think that this adaptation of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight kind of runs up against a difficulty because it's rather awkward then, if that is your philosophy, it's rather awkward for the final note of the story to be Camelot, this embodiment of society, 
of social standards, reaffirming the worth of the hero and celebrating him even when he internally feels ashamed. So in the poem, what ultimately resolves Gawain's anguish and self-doubt is that he confesses his feeling of shame. He exposes himself to his peers and his loved ones and his role models, and they then reinterpret his actions in a positive light. In David Lowry's version, in this contemporary version, it seems what does it is Gawain's total commitment to his own somehow internally individually developed standards of honor, even to the point of self-destruction. So in the movie version, you could say Gawain makes a full transition to being a sacrificial hero, who in this case sacrifices himself for the sake of honor, and sacrifices himself in order to redeem what seems to be the weakness, the decline, the decay, the corruption of Camelot, of the civilization that he comes from. And David Lowry and the movie makers may have had in mind stories about supposed pagan sacrifices of the May King, the stories from the early Middle Ages that alleged that villages would choose a virile, attractive young man to sort of rule as a king and then be sacrificed after a year. So that probably, you know, it's, it's connected again to this cult of vegetation, of spring, of nature. They probably also had in mind Christian martyrdom stories, martyrs like, for instance, St. Winifred, who also died, sacrificed herself, defending her honor. So there is a lot of precedent here for understanding Gawain in the mold of this sacrificial hero, the virile young man who puts himself forward into danger in order to protect and in some way redeem his society. As for the original poem, there are certainly a lot of suggestions of that, but they're mainly biblical allusions. There are many, many biblical resonances to the original story, the, the medieval story of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. First, the scene of Gawain presenting himself to the Green Knight and being almost executed but surviving is very reminiscent of Abraham and Isaac in the book of Genesis, where Abraham is ordered to sacrifice Isaac, apparently as a demonstration that all people, all children, actually belong to God and not to their parents. And he prepares and is ready to do so. He's even sharpening his instruments to kill Isaac. But at the last moment, God intervenes and stops him. And this scene in the Bible also is very ambiguous, but it seems to suggest that God claims all people as his possessions, as his own children. And so sacrificing them may be in accord with God's sovereignty and majesty, but it is not in accord with God's nature. It is not what God wants. He is not bloodthirsty. He does not want blood sacrifices. The story, the poetic story of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight has a kind of similar theme. It suggests a similar idea that Gawain ought to be ready to sacrifice himself for the sake of honor and the sake of the kingdom. But that doesn't mean he should. That doesn't mean he deserves to die. There also are a lot of parallels clearly between Sir Gawain and King David. Right, so David also starts out in the Bible as 
a strong young man who puts himself forward in an impossible challenge against a giant, right? David and Goliath. So there are resonances to the David and Goliath story. And furthermore, in the Bible, David does attain rulership, right? He meets the challenge, and then he attains power and glory as a king, but he also carries with him shame. And many of the Psalms in the Bible are attributed to King David, and they're songs of shame and contrition, where David confesses his cowardice and covetousness over and over again. So David is the same king who, you know, sees Bathsheba, this attractive woman, sends her husband off to die in battle, and then takes Bathsheba for himself. So, you know, he does some pretty sleazy things, according to the Bible. And then later he is penitent. He's a penitent ruler who throws himself on the mercy of God and is in some way comforted. Sir Gawain's words in the poem, when he returns to Camelot, he says a lot of the same things. He laments his own cowardice and covetousness in a way that's very reminiscent of the King David stories. And furthermore, the Gawain story is framed by Christmases. Christmas, is, it's associated with Christ, and we'll get to that, but it's also associated with David and the Psalms of David. And part of the traditional Catholic liturgy is reciting Psalms 50 and 51, which are about confessing one's sinfulness and asking for redemption, for cleansing, for forgiveness. And for instance, part of the traditional liturgy includes the lines from Psalm 51, quote, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise." End quote. So you can see how the, the, these lines, traditionally attributed to King David, seem almost like an explanation or justification of what happens at the end of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, that Gawain doesn't die, but instead of sacrificing his life and his body, Instead, he sacrifices his honor, his conscience. He confesses his shame, and that allows him to be redeemed and re regain his honor. And finally, of course, the fact that the beheading game begins and ends on Christmas also, of course, evokes Christ, who is the ultimate sacrificial offering, the sacrificial lamb, right? Another young man who sort of presents himself, throws himself upon the rulers of the world. Furthermore, Christ, as described in the New Testament, Christ tries to avoid his fate. He goes out into the desert, and for 40 days he wrestles with demons. He is tempted by the devil and demons to turn away from his path, and he finally overcomes these demons and then accepts his destiny to be God's sacrificial lamb. And remember, the castle where Gawain meets these trials with Bertilak and the lady is called Odizer, the high desert. And he has to pass through these tests before coming out the other side and meeting his fate at the Green Chapel. So you can see Gawain as a lot like Isaac, as like King David, and as Christ-like. But all of these stories ultimately end in life. Right? Isaac survives. He is not sacrificed. That is not what God wants. King David, likewise, he understands this lesson. God doesn't want him to give sacrificial offerings. He wants him to be contrite. 
And Christ, in, in the biblical story, resurrects from the dead. He does die as a sacrificial offering, but he comes back to life. So you could say, in a way, that the vision in the movie of the Green Knight is a lot more cynical, that ultimately the, the fulfillment of Gawain's calling, the fulfillment of the game, should end in his death, or at least could end in his death. That is a valid ending. And as David Lowry says, he wants the audience to see this as a happy ending. So it is possible that this recasting and rewriting of the Gawain story will resonate with contemporary audiences. As I said, it it is a successful movie so far, but it's too early to know how people are taking it, interpreting it, and exactly what aspects they like. I'd certainly be very curious to hear what anyone thinks about the ending of this movie. But as I said earlier, I think that the whole story is ultimately a meditation on shame, and that from the point of view of the Pearl Poet, shame is a necessary aspect of life. It's part of what motivates people. It is the flip side of honor, and one cannot exist independent of the other. This time right now is very ripe for a meditation on these themes of shame and honor. So David Lowery is correct that honor was a very central and powerful concept in people's lives in the medieval world. And as other historians and philosophers have pointed out, this notion of honor as a governing principle of life really declined as the world, as the Western world at least, moved out of medieval civilization into the modern world. And as things became more individualistic, more egalitarian, people are increasingly discouraged from defining themselves according to their social roles and duties, and instead see their identity as a matter of individual expression of one's unique individual essence. And I'm not saying here that one way or the other, one mindset or the other is better, but if a medieval story that is so built around honor and the requirements of honor is to resonate, it has to somehow tap in to our dilemmas today. So how would the story of Sir Gawain, in whatever version, how would it do that? How does it speak to the 21st century? Well, I already sort of hinted at that when I looked at how David Lowery himself, who is today about 40, 41 years old, how he says that he carried a sense of shame from his failure to launch and his long time with his birth family. And his story is not at all unusual of people under about 40, 45 years old in the Western world, especially in the United States, where as economic conditions change, as wealth becomes more concentrated in a smaller and smaller elite, as the sorts of steady jobs that used to offer people a stable position in society, as those diminish, it's becoming more and more difficult, especially for children of the middle class and also the blue-collar working class, to just maintain the sort of place in the world standard of living that was customary for their family. And as more and more people, I think, feel shame as they fail to attain what they think of as the normal standards of accomplishment for people of their class, I think that concern about shame and its counterpart, honor, are intensifying. And that's why I suspect that this movie might be an early incident of a trend 
of increasing interest in the sort of drama of honor and shame that is woven through medieval literature. And as one little rough corroboration of this argument, this speculation, if we look at Google engrams, just this database that tracks how frequently different words have appeared in print through the years from 1500 to today, we can put in several related ethical terms that can sound very outdated, but that maybe are gaining some new relevance again today. So honor and shame, also virtue, which is also, you know, a broad term for qualities of character that enable one to to live well and gain the respect and appreciation of others. And pride, which you could say is a, a term that can have positive or negative connotations. Today is mostly positive, but you could say a sort of self-regard, a sense, an internal sense of honor. So if you put in honor, virtue, shame, and pride into Google Ngram, you see a pretty consistent pattern. All of these terms were very common before 1800. So through the 15, 16, 1700s, all of them experienced different rises and falls and different heydays, but they were all quite common. And then all of them began declining by 1850. And honor, in fact, if you consider honor in both of its spellings, in the British spelling with a U or without a U, it started to fall off around 1800. The others maybe lasted a little longer, but began to fall off by 1850. And all through the 20th century, through most of the 20th century, these terms all declined in their usage. All of them reached an ultimate low point in the 1980s at a tiny fraction of the frequency with which they used to occur, then all of them, all four, begin to rise again, little by little, around 1990. They have all made a significant comeback. They're not at the levels they might have been at 400 years ago, but they're all becoming more common again. And the biggest turnaround, the one that has increased most dramatically over about the last 30 years, is shame. And if we think about the usage of the word shame today, it is quite different from what it would have been in the Middle Ages, of course. You could say it's sort of split into two different forms. There's the internal form, right, the negative emotion that comes from self-loathing or self-reproach. And there's also the external form, shame, that is imposed on you by society. And that now has taken on a verb usage, right, shaming people, body shaming, slut shaming, and so on. And so it has this bifurcated meaning, but either way, it's seen as negative, as something destructive, corrosive. There isn't necessarily much discussion about what one can do in order to change shame into honor. In the medieval literature, like in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, there's a pretty strong answer, which is that sacrifice is what transmutes shame into honor. And that sacrifice isn't necessarily self-destructive, but it's a sort of self-abnegation, a confession, like you see in the Psalms of David, right? That's what allows shame to redeem itself into honor. Today, I think the answer to what to do about shame is a lot less clear. It can't be very clear if there isn't a clear sense of the counterpart, the opposite. What is honor in today's world? It's an archaic term, It's, and it can't have a clear meaning when you're in a world with highly various, ambiguous, shifting, disputed 
standards of what is a good life and what is a good fulfillment of one's social duty. Like the, more, the more individualistic a world is, for whatever the advantages and positives of that, it leaves behind this confusion about what one should strive for in life. Right? There's, there's the extra layer of confusion and lack of direction. All of this should sound pretty familiar if you think about the phenomena we see today of widespread alienation, anomy, bitterness, fractiousness, which I would interpret as resulting from an inability, a lack of understanding of how to deal with shame and how to accept and cope with shame as a necessary tragic aspect of life, which can eventually lead to honorable action. Now, just to choose a very extreme and for some people maybe shocking example or illustration of this phenomenon, I'll mention so-called incels, people who gather on the internet and share a sense of bitterness, resentment, and shame at their own perceived failures. And the sort of central defining failure is the, the, the failure to get sex, right? They're involuntary celibates. The failure to get sex and companionship from women, which I would venture to say is a common recurring preoccupation of men, failing not only to get the favors of sex, but to get the implicit approval and validation of women. And many people over the last 10, 12 years have participated in this kind of underground counterculture of incels. And in some cases, they have then gone on to commit actual violence, to sort of act out their bitterness, their nihilism in killing or attacking others or in self-destruction or both. Now, what's ironic about incels is that in some ways, they're kind of like the medieval knights. You know, we might imagine them as being at the ultimate opposite extremes of chivalry, honor, the most honorable masculinity on the one hand, and just outright misogyny, violent misogyny on the other end. But remember that knighthood in the early Middle Ages was knighthood without chivalry, without the ethical code. And knights tended to be just guys who had the resources and the equipment to ride around and attack whoever they wanted to. And they did do a lot of raiding, raping, and pillaging, taking out their aggressive impulses on the world just because they could. And it took a long time to construct models and codes of behavior that would restrain and channel these impulses. And so the chivalrous knight, the knight of the High Middle Ages that is idealized in the Arthur legends, that knight is expected to be chaste. He is also expected to show not only the highest respect, but a kind of worship and longing for the lady, for a, a lady love, a love which in most instances is never consummated, but which nonetheless drives the knight towards great feats of daring and displays of virtue to attain not necessarily sex from the lady, because that only happens sometimes, like in Lancelot and Guinevere. They actually do apparently have sex and it ruins everything, but rather to attain the attentions and approval of the lady, which then validates his chivalry and his manhood. 
So the chivalrous knight was constantly going through tests, both in the literature and also to a great degree in reality, in real life. They were constantly going through tests of their honor and their adherence to their self-professed code. And in doing so, they could serve to stabilize and keep society coherent or sometimes to, to disrupt and destabilize. And the Arthur legends, I think, capture both in this sort of story arc of the brief golden age of the round table, which then falls into dissension and civil war. So ultimately, I know this is a very long commentary, but ultimately what I want to convey is that this movie is looking at a particular, very finely constructed medieval chivalric romance. And it's looking at it from the point of view of today, of a time of anomie, of alienation, a time when familiar institutions are under strain or are simply disappearing, when it's more and more difficult for many people, including young men as well as others, to fulfill what they think are the expectations of their social role, their upbringing. And it finds that this story can speak to this modern mood, this modern anxiety. And I think that the movie does find that there are things there in this medieval story that speak to today. It definitely does, but I don't think it does so as successfully as it might. Because the movie makers didn't quite recognize just how great the parallels and similarities were, and that the problems, the fears, the anxieties, the sense of shame that exist among people today certainly existed in the Middle Ages too. It's just that people had more of a shared understanding of what to do about them, of how to channel those negative feelings into virtuous or honorable action, which is something that we lack today. So I would say that while it's good to, to some degree, de-romanticize the Arthur romances, it would also be better to keep some of that romance, right? To keep some of that sense of hope, as well as the sense of paradox, right? The idea that that shame and honor are two sides of the same coin, and that despair and self-loathing can be transmuted, maybe even surprisingly easily, can be transmuted into a sense of honor and redemption. So thank you so much for listening. Please comment. I'd love to know what you think. And if you can help to keep this podcast coming and you can hear all of my patron-only materials, please go to my Patreon page. The link is in the description and become a supporter at any level, even if it's just a dollar. Thank you.